The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Extended. Hi, this is Peter Johnson from Aerospace Radio Station Extended. And we bring you some of Europe's best guests. He's, he's been something of, of an unsung hero of the American space program outside those who are, have made it their business to become aficionados of it. News. <laughs> some people will call you mad. Some people will call you heroes. Uh, uh, and everyone else is probably somewhere in that spectrum. It's, uh, it's an amazing project to, to pull together from literally from scratch. And views. You've got to pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and learn from that experience. And that's not an easy thing to do, Peter, learning from your own failure. So why not give us a listen if you want to hear about warbirds, aviation, and the aerospace industry? Come over and give us a visit. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extended. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host Dave Homewood. In this episode, we'll hear the other two speakers from the recent Wings Over New Zealand Christmas party. They are Graham Gleeson and Dick Ingham. Graham flew Avro Vulcans with the Royal Air Force, and then he came home and joined Air New Zealand, where he also talks about another famous episode that he was involved in with the airline, the hijacking in Fiji. The Wings Over New Zealand Christmas party was hosted by Fly DC3, we're very grateful to Jessica and Jeff Cooper and all of their team who helped make this event a very special one. This episode was recorded in front of a live audience in a large hangar where outside there are some helicopter operations and other aircraft movements. So unfortunately there is a bit of background noise, particularly a helicopter at the beginning of this one that was taxiing past, but it does go away fairly quickly. So, um... Graham flew Vulcans in the Royal Air Force, uh, he's a Kiwi, and he also flew uh, DC-10s with uh, Air New Zealand and various other things, so um, I'll hand it over to Graham. Well I joined uh, the Royal Air Force through the New Zealand Air Force, they had a scheme going uh, way back in about 1956, sometime like that. Um, <coughs> It required one to go into the New Zealand Air Force, do all the initial training, 
then do some flying training on Harvards, about 100 hours. And then within two months I've seen England. <coughs> Didn't fly in those days, went by sea. That took four weeks. It was all a new adventure for me. Went to London, stayed at Hendon, it was an RAS station, until they sorted out what to do with us, because there were two of us who joined. Eventually, they thought we might have to go to Canada, which I thought, well, that's great. I'm all the way over to England, now we're going to Canada. But then they changed their mind and sent us up to Northfield in Lincolnshire, where I had to fly the Piston Provost. Do it out about 70 hours on the Piston Provost. And then we had to fly the Vampires. And that was a swim to be in Lincolnshire. And while I was on the course, because I was playing rugby all the time as well, broke my leg, so th things started to slow down. And then as I was recovering, mobile x-ray unit came around to the airfield. Everyone had to go and have an x-ray. I was the last one, because I was trying to avoid it. I don't know why, but I went and had the x-ray. Must have been about six o'clock at night. Eight o'clock in the morning, I was on the way by train down to the south of England to TB hospital. Found I had tuberculosis. Fortunately, it was only slight on one of the lobes, but it still took a long time off flying. Had to have surgery. Was treated very well. Eventually, I was allowed to fly again, but not above 10,000 feet. So I think the RAF probably thought, we're paying a lot of money for this guy. You'd better be good. <laughs> I wasn't really good. So eventually, I was back on flying Provis again, and then vampires again, and then eventually onto the Vulcan. I really enjoyed flying the Vulcan, it was a lovely big aircraft. The only thing is it carried a lot of bombs and carried nuclear bombs as well. And the Vulcan force with the, uh, the Valiant and the, what's the other one? Victor. The Victor could carry 35 1,000 pound bombs. The Vulcan had a different arrangement with the main spar going through. It's going to carry 21 1,000 pound bombs. Not that we bombed anyone, fortunately, but we also carried nuclear bombs. The bombers were there because it was Cold War. Russia was the enemy. Lots of aircraft were in dispersal, scattered around England, so that if we were attacked, we couldn't take out all the airfields. So it was a cat and mouse thing. It lasted a long time. There were no 
nothing happened that would cause a scandal or any deaths or anything like that. But it meant when we were on readiness, we actually had to sleep by the aircraft. You think it was a real war going on? Well, I guess it was. A real cold war was going on. <coughs> and every now and then, in the middle of the night, alarms would go. You'd run to the aircraft, get on board. A crew chief would hit buttons. All the engines would be started up before we got into the cockpit, close the door, strap in, and wait for the next call. You might be told, told to taxi, to taxi out, hoping there wasn't going to be an alert to get us all airborne. It never was, fortunately. Taxi back to where we'd started from get out, refill the aircraft, go back to bed. And this went on for years and years. Now, now all the big bombers are gone. And of course, what is used now is intercontinental ballistic missiles. Before, when I first arrived on the Balkans, Scattered around the country were four missiles. They're all provided by the Americans. And they were in soft to cover. They didn't have, they weren't buried in the ground. They had like hangers which would roll back. And the four missiles would go upright, all intercontinental. I think there are about 15 altogether, based around England, all nuclear heads. And then to defend them, they had uh, bloodhound <coughs> sites, which were rocket-fired, radar-guided for any inbound aircraft that were coming, or possibly coming. And that's how I spent my, most of my flying time. Mind you, there were good times. We also were trained over in Libya. Libyans were more friendly then. And uh, we had bombing sites in the middle of the desert allocated properly. Obviously, you wouldn't drop bombs if there was any sign of life around there. We used to go to Malta, exercises out of Malta, Cyprus, exercise out of Cyprus. <coughs> and um, Northern Canada, Goose Bay, where we used to do flights over icy conditions, you know, in the conditions that you might find in Russia. And as years went by, nothing happened, fortunately. So I was very pleased that I went through that exercise and even more pleased that nothing 
serious occurred. There were crashes. You can't fly. The, the Balkans initially were high-level bombers. The Russians had high-level anti-bombers. So we went low-level. And low-level meant as low as you can get. Which is good if you're on a good day like this. But if it's at night, which it often was, or if it's cloudy and raining and foggy, there were crashes in the high ground in Wales and northern England. Some of the aircraft hit the deck. <coughs> You're alive. It, the crew had um, two pilots, navigator radar, navigator plotter, and air electronics officer. But they all worked in, in unison in a very small cockpit. And uh, we used to have lots of competition, of course, to see who could and navigate 100%, don't fly into hills, things like that. The, uh, the three marks of bomber, the Balkan had the unfortunate arrangement that the three rear crew Two pilots could eject, the three rear crew had to go down a door at the bottom of the cockpit. And unfortunately, when the door was open, if the undercarriage was down, that was in the way. You know, they could slide down, but they couldn't avoid hitting the nose wheel. They could try to by grabbing hold of the jacks that held the door down and try and swing around it, but they've got their parachutes on. And if we're going fast, well, they're likely to get wrapped around the nose wheel. Whereas the other aircraft, they hit the doors at the side. It wasn't possible to do that on the Vulcan because the, the wing came up so far. And um, there are several ejections over the years mostly successful. And of course we don't have any V-bombers now, they're all gone. So it's all going to be intercontinental ballistic missiles again. Plus submarines. So the Royal Navy have taken over the role that the bombers had. So the Navy have got, I don't know how many subs, but they've got a lot of subs and they've got nuclear weapons on. So have the Russians. So it's a crazy world, isn't it? You know, you go to Russia, everyone's like, we are, talk to people, I think. How politicians get it all screwed up, I don't know, but they do. I asked Graham if he would mind talking about the hijacking. First of all, do you remember the hijacking? Yeah. Now what had happened, the, uh, the political side is a party got elected that was predominantly 
Fiji Indian for the first time. The Fiji Army under Rambo Rambuka um, arrested the whole of that party and put them under house arrest in the military compound. <clears throat> there was a lot of unhappy Fiji Indians and um, some airlines didn't fly into Fiji at that time. Air New Zealand did. They relied on um, intelligence to let them know if there was going to be any problems. <clears throat> I was actually flying Auckland to Tokyo. We had to come back Tokyo, Nandi, Auckland. And we had to carry enough fuel to do the Miss Nandi and come straight to Auckland from Tokyo if there was a problem in Fiji. So we flew down, got to Nandi at about five o'clock in the morning and we were told that all was well, we could land, there was no problems. So we landed, people got off, people got on. One of the employees at the airport, who was quite a senior guy, and I had flown for Fiji Airways some years earlier, and I knew quite a lot of those people. And he came into the flight deck <clears throat> as we were preparing, you know, pre-takeoff checks and things like that. And he looked, he was a senior man, he had uh, the authorization to come on board. And all of a sudden he started shouting, threw something at me, and it was um, Molinite, same as dynamite, and was um, instead of a long stick, it was curved around like a U-shape. And um, the ignition, whatever it's called, you know, uh, had been cut short, it's about six centimetres and, and was made rough. I learned afterwards that you could quickly light it with a cigarette lighter, whatever, and um, it had six seconds and it would go. Now he started screaming to keep the passengers on, close the doors, etc, etc. And um, there were two extra flight crew because of the length of the journey and they took off down the stairs <coughs> and warned the cabin crew who really quickly got all the passengers off unbeknown to him at the time and he's shouting close the doors and so on because we didn't close the doors and the passengers all got off and unfortunately they had a walkway that went right past the front of the cockpit and then he starts screaming, get them back on. I thought, well, you've got dog sounds getting anyone back on now. <laughs> so that eventually he got the doors closed. And about six hours later, we resolved that he was demanding what he really wanted, but I found out from him. Because he knew me, and he knew me from flying and working in Fiji, he trusted me with 
not a good idea. And so, got the doors closed. All I wanted was nobody get killed, no damage to be done. And um, we're trained to make hijacker do the thinking and talking and, you know, make them work up here. And so, handed him the radio and he was talking to Auckland. By this time, special police officers, I suppose, officers uh, were in the Air New Zealand security office and it was like a big planning table with, with the things that happened like that. And um, <clears throat> he was demanding that the, that the politicians that were now in house arrest by Rambo, I call him Rambo, it's not his real name, Rambuka, um, to let them go. This went on and on, all this talking, and the flight engineer said, I want to go to the toilet, he can't go to the toilet, and I said, it's just the toilet, it's just back there, you can go and watch him and watch us at the same time. So that, then the co-pilot said, you want to go back, and so on. And he was becoming more relaxed, but he'd flare up if he wasn't getting his, his way. And eventually, I went to the toilet, and he came to me, while well, he was still watching the others, and he said, Graham, can you help me? And of course, it made me feel, we got it now, we got it in bed. So I said, yeah, what do you want to do? And he said, I want to get the people out of the house arrest. And I wanted to fly over the town where initially he was going to fly to um, Iraq or somewhere like that he wanted to go to. Libya it was, Libya. But it was just, you know, I said, we don't have any chance for Libya. He said, I have everything here in my pocket, you see. Mind you, he's got the stick of dynamite and he's got his lighter all ready to go. So he's still dangerous because he's flaring it up and calming down, flaring up and calming down. And so he got back into the jump seat <clears throat> and I went past him and sat down and the flight engineer said, I want to go to the toilet, you see. Yeah, but he's now on the radio and he, he lets him go. I think he assumes that I've got the crew working together. And of course, the Graham Walsh, as his name, came out of the loop. And while we had been at Nandy, he'd gone off the flight engineer and got himself a bottle of whiskey. Jameson's, I think it was. And he had that in a little bag just outside the cockpit. To our, there's a bobby knocker that you could use, but it's clipped into a door edge. If you pull it off, it makes a twanging noise. There's an oxygen bottle, which is that same. It's all metallic, and you move it and it makes a twanging noise. So he sacrificed his bottle of Scott, Irish whiskey, it was Irish whiskey. And I was watching over my shoulder. Hijacked chap is now busy shouting on, on the phone. Co-pilot's just sitting opposite me. 
and I see this wild-eyed Air New Zealand flight engineer holding his bottle up in the air, and he gave him a good knock on the on the head. So I leapt out of my seat, grabbed his wrist and pulled him apart, sat him on the floor, and it was all over there. So just to follow, just to follow up, you hear later people who don't have a clue saying, oh, they would have just been dummy bombs. Well, they actually had a British um, army guy who had retired and he was an expert on explosive things who tested every one of those six of dynamite and the fuses. And the fuses could light because some Qantas guy, so-called security guy, came to a meeting about it. He said, oh, you wouldn't be able to light them like that. Could like that. You know, you get all these people who say things. So some cabin crew say it's all our fault, the pilots landed at Nandy, they should have known there was going to be trouble down in Nandy. Well, it was all prearranged, and we got the clearance to land, so we landed. And everyone except the hijacker got hurt. He's the only one. So it worked well. That's another follow up. Not so long ago in the paper it said Mr. Amjad Ali has been granted New Zealand citizenship. This is the hijack. Admittedly his wife was Fijian, uh, Indian and had citizenship and of course he got it. Some reporter phoned up and said what do I think about it and I said that I'm very surprised Remember what I said now? I said I was very surprised. I'm surprised that it happened. I understood why he did what he did and left it at that. That's what I can say. Thanks very much, Graham. That was really, really interesting. And our last speaker of the day was Dick Ingham. Dick joined the Royal Air Force and flew fighter jets, ending up on the English Electric Lightning. Here's Dick. Uh, hi everyone. Um, I was christened Richard. My wife calls me Richard, but everyone else seems to call me Dick, so I'm happy with whatever you like. Um, I don't have any uh, fancy tapes for you, but I've got a few pictures of lightnings and things that uh, if you haven't seen one before. Um, I was... Uh, lucky enough to fly lightnings for about 10 years um, with the RAF, the Royal Saudi Air Force and with British Aerospace. Um, my story to start with was much the same as Graham's. I went to the UK under the same system and um, eventually got my wings at Swindon the same place that he did, but I was, what, three or four years later. Um, from Swindeby, I was posted to Lightning Conversion, and, uh, sorry, a Hunter Conversion. So I went to Chivener in Devon, did the Hunter Conversion, and then I was posted to number 92, Fighter Squadron, in, uh, at Leckenfield in Yorkshire, England. And uh, 92, uh, the 
year before they'd been the Blue Diamonds doing the flight demonstrations, flight shows and Pineborough and things. Uh, there was a lightning squadron going to do it that year, which I think was treble one. Um, there were only three lightning squadrons at that stage and they were all grounded because of a major hydraulic modification. So at very short notice, 92 was told they were going to be the aerobatic squadron again. And having arrived there a week before, they didn't need anyone new to be doing this. They dragged in a few of the aces from other squadrons. And I was farmed off down the road to number 19 squadron, which is right next door at Beaconfield. I was a bit uh, miffed about that, but uh, that's the way it was. And uh, in the event, it worked out well because 19 got lightnings before 92. So, um, the, uh, yeah, we converted in October 1962 at uh, Middleton St. George and from early 1963 onwards we were getting the latest lightnings, which was the lightning F2. Uh, F2 in uh, those two photos here, the two black and white ones. Um, the, the Lightning was a fantastic aeroplane. It was a big jump from the Hunter. The Hunter was a beautiful aeroplane to fly, uh, a real pilot's aircraft, simple. You could get full aileron with one finger, and the, it had a phenomenal roll, roll rate. It had a, uh, an Avon engine, Rolls-Royce Avon, which is uh, the most usable aircraft engine I've ever come across. You can slam it open, slam it closed at any speed and it copes with it. The, uh, the Hunters we converted on had the 7,500 pound thrust one and then the Hunter 6s, the, the uh, air defense ones, they were 10,000 pound thrust. The Lightning was, it was basically two hunters, one on top of the other. And had two, two of the same Avens, a small aeroplane by 747 standards, but by fighter standards, they were very big. Uh, 34,000 pounds, which is, how many tons is that? Um, 15 and a half tons, uh, as opposed to about 10 tons for a hunter. Uh, two 10,000 pound thrust engines with reheat that gave 14,000 pounds, so a total of 28,000 pounds, and with a takeoff weight of 34,000 pounds by landing weight, you're down to a thrust to weight ratio of about one to one. And that uh, was reflected in the performance of the aircraft. And for those who are used to light aircraft, the Lightning was the same span as the Cessna 152 and the same weight as 2152s. The uh, service ceiling was 54,000 feet, which doesn't sound all that high, I guess, but um, if you wanted to go above that height, we used an energy climb. So an energy climb meant accelerating to an excess of Mark 1 and then using the speed to get you to height and we had a limit of 60,000 feet which was purely an oxygen thing 
but um, the aircraft could easily exceed that. Uh, and I have heard of one going to 88,000 feet, but I don't think I actually believe it. Someone claimed they did once. So, um, the aircraft replaced the Javelin and the Hunter, so it was all, had an all-weather capability, radar, um, you could fly it in any conditions almost, and uh, was armed with two um, fire streak missiles, which are um, heat-guided missiles, they're very accurate, once they lock on, you can guarantee a kill, but you have to get in, into the right area to do that. And that's basically a 30 degree cone behind the aircraft you're attacking. Um, it also had two 30 millimeter Aiden guns, which are very um, powerful uh, guns with uh, uh, about a thousand rounds, I think, each. Uh, it, it doesn't sound like much, that's about 10 seconds of firing, but 10 seconds is a lot of, uh, lot of shooting. Yeah. The Lightning had the best acceleration, the best rate of climb, and the best turning performance of all its contemporaries. And uh, we had one, one occasion when we proved at least part of that. We, uh, had a detachment to Bovesham, four aircraft went there. Bovesham's a NATO base in Belgium. And we used to have these from time to time just to test the facilities in other NATO bases. Anyway, we arrived there and very late on Friday, we arrived on a Friday, very late Friday night. The colonel that commanded the local F-104 squadron uh, in the bar this was, um, challenged us to a race, um, which we of course accepted, and um, to our surprise, on Monday morning when we were due to leave, he turned up in his flying suit and everything and said, I'm ready for the race. So we lined up a Lightning and an F-104G on, uh, on the runway together, side by side, and he literally said, ready, steady, go. And just before he said go, he let the brakes off on the 104, which was the guy in the uh, lightning set. It was just about bouncing down the runway at this stage. He had so much power on. Lightning, you can't put full power on, even cold power with the brakes on, because it'll just burst the tyres. So he released the brakes up to full power. Then you have to rock the throttles outboard to engage reheat. And there's a sort of pause while the the nozzles open, so you actually lose thrust initially, and then they light with a boom, boom, and you can feel it in your back, and away you go. And uh, by halfway down the runway, he was in front of the 104 and off the ground well before it. Uh, and the race was to 36,000 feet. Uh, when he got to 36,000 feet, the 104 admitted that he was at 20,000 feet and we think he was a bit lower than that. Uh, so that gives you an idea of the climb. The uh, acceleration of a lightning from brakes off to uh, 
airborne is about 12 seconds, by which time you're doing 150, 160 knots. Um, you have to heave it off the ground fairly quickly because uh, you're accelerating so rapidly. You can actually see in that photo there, see how close the tail is to the ground, the middle one? Um, we never had a tail strike, by the way. Um, the moment the wheels are off the ground, you hit the up button, the main wheels immediately go whoops back into the wing, and the nose wheel doesn't start retracting until the main wheels are up. And if you haven't had the button in by the time you're doing about 170 knots, the nose wheel will never make it against the slipstream because it ret um, retracts forwards. So uh, 45 seconds after brakes off, you're doing 450 knots, probably at about 3,000 feet, then pull the nose up and up you go. The rate of climb way in excess of 50,000 feet a minute at that stage. And after 2 minutes and 35 seconds, you're level at 36,000 feet, doing 0.9 mark. So I don't think there's any other aeroplane that uh, could match anything like that, to be honest. Um, where are we? Yeah, the Lightning could uh, you start both engines, have all the systems running, and uh, and be off the ground inside two minutes from sitting in the cockpit. So during the, one of the frequent exercises, you'd be sitting in the cockpit the side of the runway strapped and ready to go within two minutes of someone saying go you'd be off the ground um, the object of the aircraft was an interceptor very short range by the way the uh, the fuel that it carried but even with the ventral tank underneath the little tank under the fuselage was 7200 pounds which is three and a half tons. Sounds like a lot of fuel, but uh, I don't think either Graham or I ever landed a 747 with that little amount of fuel. You'd be uh, sweating if you did. And that's what we started with. Um, the fuel gauges were almost the primary instrument because you could actually, there were two small gauges like that. You could actually see them moving when you're in reheat. And um, the, yeah, the idea was that as an interceptor, sit on the edge of the runway. When the uh, Russian bombers were getting close, off you'd go, intercept them 30 or 40 miles out, shoot them down, back on the ground. You'd be back on the ground inside 20 minutes. And it took 10 to 15 minutes to turn the aircraft around, rearm it, and you'd be ready to go again for the next wave. Um, that was a really good idea, except that uh, um, someone had spoiled it all by inventing standoff bombs, which they could drop further out and were guided in. Uh, so the Lightning quickly had refueling probes fitted and that changed the game quite a lot. Uh, we learned to refuel in the air from Valiant tankers and later on Victors. 
That's a Victor tanker on the right there. And on the left. Uh, refueling was quite interesting. It's, uh, I guess you did it in Vulcan City? Right? Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, it's a bit like learning to ride a bike. Um, the the probe on the on the lightning was on the left side, probably about two meters from where you were sitting, and about just on the edge of the vision. Uh, so you couldn't look at that and look at the what you were formating on at the same time. So they had a bunch of lines painted on the uh, aircraft that you were refueling from. You knew which was your line. You flew down that line, and on peripheral vision you could check the height of the of the drogue and hopefully drive into it. Now, if you went into it too slowly, you got what you call the soft contact, and when the fuel started, it all come spraying out everywhere. Uh, if you hit it too hard, um, there was a weak link in it and the drogue came off and I had the pleasure of landing once with a, with a drogue sitting on the end of the probe while the tanker went home to get a new one. Um, but after a while I got used to it and it, uh, it actually became relatively easy. Yeah, we had a few interesting detachments from time to time. We went to Cyprus twice for six weeks. That's when they were having the problem with the, uh, the Turks and the uh, Greek Cypriots were not very happy with each other. And uh, we were just there to show the flag, to be honest. Um, went to Bodo once, which is north of the Arctic Circle in Norway. Uh, it was one of, another one of these NATO uh, detachments and we discovered when we got there the runway was clear, it was beautiful but the week before they'd been operating off, uh, off um, hard packed snow which I don't know how the lightning would have behaved on that tyre pressures on the lightning are 350 psi and um, tyres are filled with nitrogen um, so, uh, yeah, and bursting tyres wasn't an unusual thing, to be honest. The Lickenfield, where we flew from, was noted for its crosswinds. The runway was north-south, prevailing wind was westerly, and a new set of tyres would probably last three landings. Um, and to burst the tyre was not at all unusual. You'd hear the bang as it went, you wouldn't know which one it was. Of course, I mean, they're only about three or four inches deep, so with no, it didn't lean one way or the other, and that didn't seem to make any difference to the braking. So, uh, yeah, you just got used to it. Um, nearly all the flying was done in pairs. Targets were always or usually uh, Canberra's that were out there for that reason, or if we're in a pair, we'd split and take it in turns attacking the other one. And any incoming V-bombers like the Vulcans, we'd be uh, right after them. 
the Vulcans, when they're coming back, um, they're usually light. And believe me, a Vulcan at 40,000 feet turns very well. It takes a lot of uh, getting behind. And as I mentioned before, you have to get, we could get them with the missiles okay, but uh, usually practiced with the guns because the missile bit was relatively easy. And with guns, you could, you could hold them in the turn for about 90 degrees and then you started falling outside them. Uh, but we got around that by, we're in a pair, and when we turned in behind them, the second guy dropped back, so he was three miles behind. And then, as the Vulcan finished its turn, it'd be right in front of the second one who'd get him. So, but I don't think a, I don't think the Russians would uh, turn like that. And uh, b, where the hell is it? Uh, a and b, they'd be heavy, so because they still have their bombs and and hopefully for them enough fuel to get back to Moscow. Um, now the Cold War, as uh, Graham mentioned, it was uh, was very real in those days. Um, the Russians had something like 30 or 40,000 uh, atomic bombs of one sort or another. The Americans had a few less, but not many less. And that's not counting the British and the French and anyone else that might have had them. Um, the, as Graham mentioned, the uh, Thor missiles were all around us. Um, they had British warheads on American rockets and the bloodhounds that protected them, they, they used to practice too. And as you, we flew over the bloodhound base, you could see the missiles follow you around and uh, uh, the British people had been told that in the event of a, an unplanned nuclear attack they had four minutes and I'm, I'm quite sure that all of Western Europe, UK, North America and Russia would have been wiped out in any nuclear war. So it was a little bit scary in some ways. But, uh, yeah. So in, uh, in 1965 I decided I'd had enough of uh, drilling holes in the sky and I thought I'd come back to New Zealand and uh, uh, Know, get a job within New Zealand or something like that. So I gave the Air Force, I, had an, I was on an eight-year contract, a 12-year one, with an option to leave after eight. So I decided to leave after eight, and uh, I gave them a year's notice, thinking that having that much notice, they would say, oh, it's not worth shifting him, we'll leave him on the lightning squadron. But I got an instant posting to a simulator, so I was a bit better interested about that. Um, that was at Swindaby in Lincolnshire, not far away. Uh, not Swindaby, um, Binbrook in Lincolnshire, not far away. And um, while I was there, I managed to bludge the odd ride in the lightning, but nothing much. 
Um, but about that time, the Saudis signed a contract with British Aircraft Corporation to buy 40 Lightnings and 24 Strike Masters plus a uh, missile, ground surface to air missile and, and uh, radar system. And there'd been the odd, well, you know about the war between Saudi Arabia and um, Yemen, which is going on now. Well, there ain't nothing new under the sun. They were fighting then. It was the, and I'm talking about 1965, 66, the Yemenis royalists uh, were backed by Saudi Arabia and the Republicans were backed by Egypt. And to that end, there were Egyptian MiGs in Sana, which from time to time were crossing the border and shooting up the odd town. And uh, the, the Saudis decided they needed an air force to look after them. But the problem was that it was going to be two years before the first lightnings were delivered. So the air ministry and the RAF decided they'd give them an interim air force. And this was six lightnings and six hunters and they were going to supply pilots from somewhere. And uh, that happened in June 66. Well, I was due to leave shortly after that. And the uh, powers that be in the Air Force said that uh, any Lightning pilot who was about to leave could apply for a contract in Saudi Arabia. Well, there were only two of us. There's myself and Jack O'Dowd. Jack O'Dowd's always a, also a Kiwi. He said he wasn't interested, but I was, so I signed up. And uh, uh, a month or so later, I was in Saudi Arabia and for that. So the exercise was called uh, Magic Carpet. And to be honest, it was a long, I was there two years. The second year I worked direct for the Saudi Air Force and so I guess that made me a mercenary, but we never actually shot at anyone. The moment the lightnings and hunters arrived, the MiGs disappeared, and uh, it was a long two years. I uh, had a lot of experiences, but didn't really enjoy it. And uh, at the end of it, I uh, heard that British Aircraft Corporation needed a lightning pilot, flight refueling qualified, with Middle East experience immediately. Well, I had a look down the list and I couldn't see anyone else who had those three. There's plenty had two of those qualifications. And I, I figured I was the only one that had all three. So when I left Saudi Arabia, I raced off to BAC, went in and had an interview and a couple of days later, BAC was at Wharton in Lancashire. A couple of days later, I was in the south of England, and I had a call telling me I had the job, get back as quick as I could, but I needed a license. And I said, "What sort of license?" And they said, "You know, any sort of any pilot's license." Being a military person, I hadn't even thought about getting a license. 
Uh, I said, how about a PPL? They said, yes. <laughs> Get back here with a PPL and you're in work. And so I raced into the nearest aero club and said, had my logbook and everything, how do I get a PPL? They said, well, sit down here and do this exam. I sat down and half an hour later I'd done the exam. They said I'd passed enough of the questions and off I went with a piece of paper and a stamp to the uh, Civil Aviation in London and called in what you want, PPL, uh, what type of aircraft you want on it. Lightning. Um, yeah, okay. Um, we, can, we can do that, but you'll have to have a multi rating. What are you going to do your multi rating in? I said, Lightning. And they said, Well, you can't do a multi rating in a Lightning because the engines are one above the other, and therefore it only counts as a single engine aircraft. And I said, Well, if it's only a single engine aircraft, I don't need a multi rating, do I? And they said, yes, you do. <laughs> and I sort of were digging the heels in, and they were too. And eventually the guy disappeared behind the screen. And after about 15 minutes, he came back and said, here's your PPL. So I raced up the PAC, and basically I had a job. And, um, job was to fly lightnings to Saudi Arabia basically and that was flight refueling all the way and then a, a typical sortie would be three Victor tankers and two lightnings. Now, that sounds like a lot of tankers to not many lightnings but uh, they said the Air Force said well we have to we'd have to detach the, the tankers out anyway so we might as well go out with them that way we didn't have to try and find them as well, as well. and uh, so three light, three victors and two lightnings would head off. Um, the, as soon as we got with them we had to refuel immediately because we couldn't refuel over the northern front for some reason. Uh, and then further on the, the first tanker would refuel the other two tankers, refuel the lightnings to go back second one would refuel us most of the way. Uh, we refueled six times, it sounds like a lot, but it was basically just topping up all the time because we had to assume that when you made contact, you didn't, for some reason didn't get fuel and, uh, and therefore you had to be able to get to a bolt hole to land um, you know, within basically an hour's flying. So, uh, They'd stick with us all the way. The second one would go into Malta, and the third one would refuel us right up to 
five miles off the coast of Egypt. Now, Egypt wasn't speaking to the RAF at that stage, or to Britain, so they couldn't fly into Egyptian airspace, but we could because we were Saudis. And uh, so off we'd go to, uh, they'd peel off into Cyprus and we'd carry on and land in, uh, in uh, Jeddah to ferry the aircraft to, uh, to Rio. So I stayed on at BAC for a few years doing that and other jobs. Uh, I was current on five types at one stage, which was great fun. Um, but while I was there, I, I rubbed shoulders with some really uh, well-known pilots. I'd just like to tell you about one or two of them, just to finish up. Uh, the director of flight ops was Roland Beaumont, B, we called him. And B was a uh, World War II ace of hurricanes and typhoons. He made the typhoon famous for his shooting up tanks and trains. Um, and he was also a test pilot with Hawkers. And he went on to do tests as well. Um, he flew the first British aircraft to fly supersonic in level flight, which was the Lightning. Uh, he was the first to go to Mark II, and that was in the Lightning. And his first flight, he did the first flight on the Canberra, the Lightning, and the TSR II. He was quite a reclusive guy, um, well known in the flying world, and he commanded a lot of respect. Uh, another one was Mike Randrup. Um, Mike Randrup was uh, a very unassuming guy. He was the BAC manager in uh, Saudi Arabia, and uh, he was the B. You got to know him through through uh, the Typhoon program. He was the uh, chief test pilot for Napiers. Napiers built the engines that went in the Typhoon, which was a 24-cylinder sleeve valve Napier Sabre engine, which started off at 2,000 horsepower and then was developed to 3,500 horsepower. So it was a fantastic engine. The only catch was in the early days, it was extremely unreliable. And uh, Mike Randrup's main claim to fame was that he was the most experienced glider pilot in England. Um, he also held the world altitude record in a Canberra at one stage, 70,000 feet. And that was a, a, a Canberra with two uh, rocket engines, which he, he uh, turned on to about 40,000 feet, I think it was, and shot up to 70. Um, the chief test pilot was Jimmy Dell, the deputy Tim Ferguson, they are both highly respected pilots. And then, uh, yeah, um, has anyone ever heard about roll your coupling or inertia coupling? It's a, it's a malaise that uh, occurs only in very high performance aircraft, modern ones, where they have long thin fuselage, with all the weight in the fuselage, and and small wings. And uh, if you can imagine them flying at very high speed 
and with a reasonably high angle of attack. If you think of the fuselage as being a rod with two weight, a weight on each end, like a dumbbell, if, if, if you're flying a dumbbell along like this, and you do that, the weights go tend to straighten out to the axis. Do you understand that? It's uh, like a governor on an engine. The weights, the, the weight of the aircraft will try to get onto the same axis as the roll. And of course, that, if you if you suddenly increase the angle of attack at that stage, it's not going to do the aircraft a lot of good. So. Johnny Squire was doing what they call a corner point exercise. Corner point is a graph which usually has something up in the vertical axis, like say uh, altitude, and a horizontal axis which say is speed, and then there's a line goes up from the maximum speed and one across from the maximum altitude. Where they intersect, that's called a corner point and all the aircraft are tested to the corner point. Well, Johnny Squire had to uh, find this lightning at Mark 1.7, which equates to 650 knots indicated, at about 40,000 feet, put it into a turn, and then apply a maximum aileron in the other direction. Well, the aircraft, um, that's when they discovered roll your coupling in Britain, because the aircraft tried to align itself to the axis of the roll and uh, it basically broke up, it just fell to pieces before Johnny Squire was sitting in his ejection seat and uh, he found himself a couple of seconds later still sitting in his ejection seat with, with no aeroplane. He hadn't bailed out, he hadn't ejected and uh, <laughs> here he was and because he hadn't ejected the seat didn't go through its normal sequence, which is uh, to fire out a little drogue which stabilizes the seat as it falls and then as you get to about 10,000 feet it will tip the pilot out of the seat and pull the parachute out. Uh, he had to do all that manually, uh, which he did successfully. He was, he was um, recorded as being the first man to eject from a supersonic aircraft, but it was incorrect because, as I said, he didn't eject, he fell out, and uh, he landed in the Irish Sea, uh, inflated his thing, he climbed into it and turned on his Sabi beacon. It was uh, lousy conditions, um, low cloud, and strong winds, and after two years of searching, all they had found was a fisher, fishing boat which reported seeing a lightning or seeing an aeroplane dive into the water. Uh, so they thought that was the end of poor old Johnny Squire. They gave up looking and nearly two days after the uh, event, he actually paddled ashore in his dinghy in, in uh, Stranra in Scotland. And uh, <laughs> so, so he was a fairly interesting guy. Uh, one, one other of note, uh, John, John Coburn, um, he did the spinning trials of the lightning. They decided that lightnings could spin. Uh, lightning's very forgiving. Um, if you uh, 
pull too hard and then turn and go into an incipient spin and just relax the back pressure and it continues flying. But this was proper spinning. He did two, uh, two details of spinning which were totally successful on the third one and it failed to recover. So the minimum height for spinning in a lightning was 10,000 feet. It hasn't recovered by 10,000 feet out your hop. And uh, 10,000 feet sounds like a lot, but you know, it goes up at 50,000 feet a minute, goes down about the same speed when it's spinning. And it, so that equates to about 12 seconds to impact. So out he went at 10,000 feet or thereabouts. The aeroplane continued and uh, fell into a place called Pilling Bog, north of Wharton, disappeared into the bog and it's never been seen since. There was a hole in the ground but that was it, they didn't even bother trying to get it out. So that was the end of the spinning. So yes, I had a wonderful time at BAC, uh, incidentally English Electric designed and built the lightning. BAC was what they became when they amalgamated with other companies like, for instance, Vickers, and then later it became British Aerospace, then they amalgamated again with the Hawker Siddeley Group. So if I keep saying BAC or English Electric or BA, it's the same place. Anyway, uh, after five years there, uh, I went, I came home on holiday and uh, I hadn't even thought of uh, applying to Air New Zealand but um, someone said have you been in for an interview yet and I said no why and they said oh Air New Zealand's recruiting get in there quick so I went in and uh, it was just the time that they expanded with the DC-10 and um, it was sort of uh, obvious when I went in that they were desperate <laughs> and they'd even take me having turned me down flat um, six years before and so went back to UK three months later I was back here and uh, and that's the end of my story about lightnings. So thanks very much for listening. I hope I haven't bored you too much. I'm sorry I didn't have any tapes or anything. Oh just one thing, this photo here, let's see that's uh, a Victor tanker. That's what it looks like as you approach it, and and that's the view when you're actually refueling. That's taken from a T-55 that was on its way to Saudi Arabia. Uh, the, the guy in the right-hand seat took that while we were actually refueling. So as you can see, you get up pretty close and personal. So thanks very much. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.